Hello, and welcome to Faultline's special series from the Reagan National Defense Forum, Confronting the New Alliance of Global Repressors. We're recording in person at the Reagan National Defense Forum. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow, and I'm joined by NSI's Deputy Executive Director, Jessica Jones. Joining us today is our special guest, Mara Rudman. She is the James Schlesinger Distinguished Professor at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, which is an awesome title. Uh, Mara is a friend. She is also a veteran of really key positions in the White House, State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and Capitol Hill. Uh, you've seen a lot of stuff from a lot of different directions. Mara, thank you for, for being with us on the podcast today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Stephen. That's uh, like another way of saying I'm old, by the way. Uh, yeah. oh, well, you're, you know, there's a lot of other old folks around. Great position, that. Thank you. So you're, you've been here at the Forum all day and maybe last night as well. Uh, what are you tracking? What have you seen that's that's interested you so far? Thanks, Les. I, well, I actually think there's been a number of fascinating discussions, starting with a dinner I was at last night. And discussions that very much track the kinds of um, concerns that the commissioners on the National Defense Strategy Commission have, and that's why I'm here, is in in, that, in the commissioner role, and we're going on to Indo-PACOM and and to Japan from here. So I have heard a great deal that informs the work that we are doing, which is to assess the 2022 national defense strategy um, and to, as Steve Hadley just reminded us in a discussion we had with him about it, to inform the American people about what works, what doesn't, uh, what we need to do in the context of that evaluation. So as we've heard a lot of discussion here today, national defense strategy lays out China as a pacing competitor, uh, Russia as an acute threat. I would call it a chronic threat. Use some word that is is, uh, less momentary. Then acute, uh, but recognizing China, uh, tall pole in the tent in terms of where, what we need to do, how we need to focus. Also, very clear though that uh, acknowledging and looking at China as a pacing competitor doesn't mean that the Indo-Pacific is the only region we need to be concerned about. Uh, what's happening in the Middle East <laughs> makes that very clear. Uh, the entire African continent, as less you would know well, um, and. What we do, what we do around the country, we, the United States, uh, impacts our ability to manage the competition with China. It's not that everything around the world is a subset of China or of Russia, but the United States' relationship with China is implicated by how we handle ourselves all around the world. Um, and so I've learned a lot last night today about those discussions, a lot of the work that we have to do at home to uh, be able to deal with the world and things that would help us at home. I actually happen to think that a huge amount of the Biden legislative package, legislative economic package from the last two years implemented effectively, that's key, will, is critical to both the kind of America that we want going forward and the ability of America to compete effectively in the world. And so to me, all of the discussions last night today have, have informed kind of that thinking, got me considering additional paths we need to go down in various ways um, to talk about how our government and how our country can best be situated in the world going forward. So I, I want to kind of come back to that, like what, we need to do things at home question. But first, let me let me ask you about there's there's a bit of a debate on the, on the right, perhaps more, more so than the left. There's a debate on the right about whether the U.S. can be a global leader in handling all of these important challenges around the globe, China, Ukraine, the Middle East. Africa, or whether it should just focus on China as that 
pacing competitor, that pure competitor. That is, have you seen that debate here at the Reagan Forum? I confess I have not seen it. Why is that debate because not happening here? Because there are rational here? people here at the Reagan Forum who have experience in how the world works and the extent to which the United States, for U.S. interests, it's indispensable that we, our role in the rest of the world is indispensable. I think it was Madeleine Albright who used that language. I don't want to be uh, inadvertently quoting someone without acknowledging. Um, it serves for the kind of security that any president of the United States owes the people of the United States. That requires deep involvement and smart involvement, smart investment throughout the rest of the world. It's not like we can choose which country and who we're competing with, and that means we only focus there. No more than we can choose a state in the United States and say, you know, that's our most important yeah. state. We don't have to do anything anywhere else. So this this argument about doing things domestically, uh, but there's this there's this fairly interesting intellectual argument that you know you really need to tie the U.S. global role more explicitly to uh, showing the the working class and the folks who might conceivably left get left behind by a more global approach to world affairs. Uh, that this stuff matters to them, it's actually good for them, and this is, we're all in this together, and, you know, we all benefit when there's better trade and we're making investments in other countries. It's not just about fixing the bridge in Missouri, it's also about maybe doing some infrastructure projects in Southeast Asia. Do you think that can resonate in a way for, uh, and I don't want to get too political yeah. here, but can that resonate for this administration? Because you know the other side's going to come at it in all likelihood from a more, you know, they're selling you out to go do this global stuff. Can that, so can that work in time to make a difference? So the first thing I would say is, I think however we're talking with the American people, we have to, we're talking with ourselves, right? So, and, and we look and sound and are and think a lot of different things. And so to figure out how it is that, that those in government or people outside of government who are trying to support the, the routes forward that we think our government leaders have taken, how, how to communicate most effectively um, for why uh, the fact that everyone is dependent on iPhones. I'm looking at your iPhone now, Steve, right? And the iPhones, to have iPhones that we all can afford, and, and, but also use every single day, yeah. guess what? We need semiconductors, and we yeah. need the critical minerals that allow for various other items in, whether it's your iPhone, whether it's your electric vehicle, and I know there are different views. Oh, on I got one of those. Yeah, he, just, like he just got uh, one. I was yeah, shocked. I, I was... Yeah. It goes really fast. I like it. I want to I have a hybrid because I was just a little risk adverse. I you'll get there. So you'll yeah, yeah. So, be forced. But, but so I would want to talk to folks around the country about the uh, importance of having supply chains and deals with partners around the world that can allow, can ensure that we all have the ability for our iPhones to operate, that if we want to buy an electric vehicle, we have the capacity, all the different things we use batteries for at this point, and our electronics. And we need the mining, the processing, and then the supply chains on these critical minerals and rare earth minerals, which I get most people, there's no reason for you to think about that in your daily right. life. But we have to find ways, I think, listen, I think people in the United States are pretty smart and pretty wise. Someone earlier today uh, spoke of that. And um, and also former boss of ours, the Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman, Lee Hamilton, talked yep. about never talking down to the American people, but speaking with the American people. And I think we all need to come together to figure out 
Uh, and I think there are a whole bunch of us uh, in the center of the country, not necessarily the oh, geographic right. center, right, but mm-hmm. who, who agree on a lot of the same things. And guess what a lot of people around the world do? They want to have good jobs. They Most people want less stress in their lives in one way or another, but they want good jobs. They want their kids to have a decent education. They want their kids to have a better future than they had. That's what I think most people in this country yeah. want. And guess what? And most people around the world in most places. And it will help us get the things we need for the people in the United States um, if we increase understanding of those points and then figure out how to uh, work those kinds of deals. And I would say deals because I don't think it's all about foreign assistance in any way, shape, or form uh, with uh, countries around the world. I guess on that point, so your, from your experience at the Hill, we've had some guests today talking about kind of rancor on the Hill and, and getting things done. I mean, these are pretty complicated topics. We, until COVID, we didn't, like, policymakers weren't really talking about supply chains and semiconductors. So we're asking a lot for the American public to, you know, really take up, I think. Um, but, you know, who, how would you rate kind of the, the information and the messaging coming from whether it's the Hill or the White House when it comes to these complicated topics that range from, you know, critical minerals all the way to understanding the threat of China? I mean, yeah. Well, first, it, it's hard, right? It, it's I am far from a good messenger, you know, a soundbite person. Um, And we can also get to this. It's also hard when you have a good chunk of the population that is absorbing all of their information in maybe 90-second bites. And let's talk about Byte, the company that owns TikTok, right? That... So the the opportunity for mis and disinformation and short chunks of information and lack of agreement about facts. So like stipulate, right? All that makes it enormously difficult. Um, I think that the administration is trying hard. I actually think Gina Raimondo, who's here, is one of the more effective communicators. Everyone loves ever. Raimondo. He's trying to make, talk about somebody. <laughs> but I, I like this every time she speaks somewhere. I try to like take my internal notes on how she is. Because I think she, how she's translating complicated topics in very accessible ways, um, and she's also doing a phenomenal job inside government. But right, that so it's so it's possible. It's hard but possible. On Capitol Hill, I don't, don't even touch it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they, it is so the way the House is operating right now. Let's just take the House. I actually, the House makes the Senate look really, really good, and the Senate has Tuberville, who's holding up, you know, most of our military from promotion, you know, for promotions and, and ruining people's lives and doing so. And the House makes the Senate look good. So the House is so dysfunctional. Um, like the idea, and I think you were getting at this earlier, Les, that you could uh, support Israel money and not support Ukraine money, that there's any logic in that. Um, that the President's request has border security money in it, but somehow it's not the right kind of border security money or it's not what that it, it is. There's a problem solvers caucus in the House. That's great. There's a small group of people who uh, I think are the equivalent of legislative terrorists yeah. in, in what they're doing. And they're not representing the interests of the American people and where the majority of people are and where the majority of members are. How do you think that plays in? Do you think that directly plays into this misinformation, disinformation stuff we're seeing from Russia, China, even Iran? Is that like, because a lot of people kind of talk a little loose about, well, you know, all of this stuff is kind of of the of the same ilk. Is it? Is that? Like, are we? I don't know if it's. The, I don't know if I would say the same ilk. I think we give fodder. I think there are a couple of things going on. I think that that kind of behavior, those kinds of antics on the House floor, gives fodder to those who are going to manipulate 
um, our social media because they have the sound clips. You don't even have to take out a context. We're giving it. Right? It, it's right there. So I think that's, that's a, and we've seen Russia capitalize on We've seen all of those countries at various points, right, capitalize on, like it's your personally most embarrassing moments. Some of our country's most embarrassing political moments, they make sure to leverage and get out. And, and the, al- the way algorithms work at this point, right, the most extreme views on both sides are incentivized to keep spinning out there. So there's that problem. There's also the problem, though, that uh, we have folks, and I think this is both extreme right and extreme left, I happen to think extreme right is more of a problem, um, partly because of the ways they're then controlling what happens on the House floor. But they consider popularity in social media clearly more important than than popularity with their constituents or with the American people. And it's and that's their motivation. That's their incentive. And again, the logarith- the algorithms are going to completely support that, and kind of keep feeding. It's like a drug. It drives some really strange behavior. Right. And so, so that's like a big piece, I think, behind all of this that really concerns me. I know it concerns my fellow members of the commission in figuring out where the solution sets are. It's real challenging. All right. Let me let me kind of change the focus a little bit. Let's talk about Iran. Um, a lot of folks like to talk about Iran supporting Hamas directly. Uh, Iran has been supporting the Houthi rebels. The Houthis have been a little more active lately in a variety of malign ways uh, in the region. Russia drones for it, it's, Ukraine. Exactly. So is talk about the the Biden administration's approach or the Trump administration's approach as you wish to Iran. Yeah. What works? What doesn't work? And and how do you see things? maybe playing out in a productive way in the future? Well, I'd align myself with Secretary Mattis on Iran. I would start there. Um, And uh, my sense is, and I don't know this from talking to him directly about it, but the CENTCOM commander, he had some frustrations or concerns with aspects, and of course never said it publicly, but with aspects of how the administration was serving at the time, was handling it. But he's also said very publicly, once the uh, JCPOA was agreed to, then that became what we should be following. So he thought it was a mistake to remove, however however insufficient folks thought those boundaries were, they were still boundaries. And we lost leverage with Iran, and we lost leverage with the other folks talking about needing to have work with alliances, who we ultimately would need with us to have an effective agreement with Iran. Um, So I think that President Biden came into office with a really tough hand on that front. Um, and would I like to see them make more progress? Yes. Uh, but I, I think he, so I would put it as he's doing the best that he can at this point with um, some privilege, some quite problematic facts on the ground in terms of Iran and its behavior and where there's leverage or not. Any other questions? Uh, Deputy Director Jones. <laughs> well, for the last interview, we, we, we talked to Secretary Panetta, and we got into pets. So to end, to end a conversation that could be in a positive way, dark, yeah, yeah. Right, the future yeah. of, of our country and national security. Um, so to try to end this conversation on a positive light, please tell me you have a pet that can bring joy to America. <laughs> I, when I'm sitting here contemplating, oh, no. I'm obviously going to do it because uh, is, I, I have my own personal lobbying campaign at home to acquire oh, okay. a doodle. <laughs> Oh, doodle! I want a doodle. I really do. Is there a, are there things the podcast can do to promote the doodle program? <laughs> no, 
No one else adopt doodle ever. No one yeah, else did doodles. My not on social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is probably why we could do a letter part. writing campaign. Uh, go old school. Perhaps. Yeah, That's for America. I, I'm we can, like, we, I'm we can very dicey right America. now. I really. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you. I look. There's like a website. What is it? Um, Keystone Puppies. That that's like my relaxing oh. thing at night. Like instead of like yeah. doing online shopping, I don't buy them, but I just look and I make my list. Mara, thanks for being with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank All you. right, that's a wrap. Thanks to Devlin, Bernie, and the rest of the NSI staff for their help in producing today's episode. That uh, we're coming live from the Reagan National Defense Forum. Fault Lines is now up on YouTube, so check out our channel for a video of today's episode. If you like what you heard or saw, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>